0: Welcome to the Holistic Health Podcast, beautiful humans. If a professional, polished,
1: well-edited podcast is what you're after, then move right on. If, however, you love unfiltered banter, unedited bloopers, authentic heart sharing and a very generous dash of holistic health education, then you're in the right place.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Holistic Health Podcast. Amy and I are having a technological failure of a day. Um, Mm -hmm. However, we're hoping that this all runs smoothly. So everyone, if if you're listening, assumably it has gone smoothly, but (laughs) just pray for us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, today's topic is something very close to our hearts personally and professionally and something that I know so many women suffer with and need support around. So let's maybe just dive in for a bit of a top level refresher on what endometriosis is. Do you mind do you mind just explaining it for everyone Amy?
1: Yeah, so look, in the endometrium is the lining of the uterus that grows each month to support new life in the event that that's what unfolds. And it's the tissue that's shed when we get a period. Um, I saw some random ridiculous video on Instagram recently where some people, Nat, Sorry, I've gone sideways really quick at the beginning of the episode, but I just have to say because it's really relevant um, that there's, there's people out there saying that periods aren't normal. I mean, there's bloody doctors that say you don't need one when you're overlooking the fact that it's actually the hallmark of successful ovulation, which mm-hmm. is how we make our hormones. Um, anyway, some guy, <laughs> some guy was saying, you know, it's unclean and we shouldn't bleed and that's abnormal. And I've seen other mm-hmm. people saying you should only get like one or two periods a year. Anyway, these people need a physiology class real fast, and uh, that is the basic physiology of endometrium, if you like. Now, endometriosis is a tricky condition to really define. It, it used to be; it's, it's becoming more and I guess more and more directed towards an autoimmune disease. It's always known to be inflammatory. It is influenced by hormones. um, And it used to be considered more of a hormonal condition, hormonally driven condition. And of course, hormones do have an effect. But ultimately, what endometriosis is, is abnormalities with the endometrium, namely the endometrium growing outside of the uterus. So, in places that it's not supposed to be. And so it can grow, you know, more locally. So on the outside of the uterus, it can impact the fallopian tubes. It can impact the ovaries. And every time the the body is hormonally triggered to shed the endometrium, we get endometrium shedding within the rest of our body and not just out of our uterus. And so it's, it's in a sense like internal bleeding if I can put it really um, crudely, it's obviously not that black and white, but blood on the in the peritoneal cavity is incredibly painful as anyone who's ever had internal bleeding can attest to. Um, and of course, this um, it's a biologically active tissue that grows and shrinks and grows and shrinks and sheds. And so we have tissue behaving in this um, dynamic way in places in the body that it shouldn't be, which can over time not just cause pain, but also scarring, um, adhesions and cause, you know, other internal organs to kind of twist and stick to each other. And of course, endometrial tissue can actually go anywhere. It can mm. it can be go beyond the peritoneal cavity. Um, I know of a particular patient who it somehow made its way to its sinus cavity. So every time she had a period, she would have a week-long nosebleed. Um, there has been case reports of it found in the brain. Um, and and how this happens is still something that science is unraveling. There is obviously an immune issue here Um, And also, you know, something is moving that tissue outwardly. Now, you know, retrograde bleeding is one theory and it's likely to be a combination of a few things. But basically what it means as a woman, if you have endometriosis, is anything from unexplained fertility issues um, up to, you know, incredibly, extremely painful periods and debilitating full body pain. Um, not even just around the period time, actually, Um, with with the autoimmune inflammatory stuff that happens with endo, you know, some women actually are in pain all month long, and it's kind of the degree to how much pain that they're in sort of tells them where they are in the cycle. So it is one of, it's such a debilitating condition. I don't want to compare it to any other debilitating condition because everyone's got their own, you know, journey and threshold and things Mm -hmm. like that. But it's horrific. Um, It can make having a a menstrual cycle just an incredibly devastating and life interrupting experience. Um, It can sometimes mean women end up having, you know, hysterectomies very young because the root cause hasn't been addressed and, and dealt with. Unfortunately, the most common allopathic recommendation is just to suppress ovulation and therefore the development of the endometrial tissue once a month but of course that doesn't solve anything and add synthetic estrogens to the mix um and the underlying causes le- are left unchecked so It's horrible, absolutely horrible. Um, I have immediate family members with it. I've never bothered doing the laparoscopic surgery, but I would be willing to bet a million dollars I have it based on what my menstrual cycles were like when I was younger until I started treating myself as if I had endo. And I know Nat, for you, um, Mm. endo is also a big part of your story. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And yeah, it can. I think something to did such a good job there at explaining it. And the other thing I wanted to add is that everyone's experience of endo is different, mm. and so sometimes you may only have a small number of adhesions or endo, so to speak, um, but be in a lot of pain. And sometimes the opposite can be true. So it it is an area that is. Constantly evolving, our understanding of it is constantly evolving. And so I think that's something to keep in mind. And to be honest, I think from a natural medicine perspective, it's about really look zooming out and, and looking at, you know, it from an autoimmune inflammatory um consideration and then also taking into account hormones that can influence it, as you said. Mm. The other thing to remember, because we're about to dive into to dietary strategies, is that you know diet is one component mm. in which we can help to manage endo. But it is by no means the only thing that most people need to do mm. or that can be of benefit. And so I'm sharing that for two reasons. One, to make sure that the people who are, you know, following all of the recommendations that we're about to share and are still in pain or are still suffering don't feel like there's just something wrong with them and that everyone else who just follows these recommendations is automatically cured. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, two, to make sure that if there are some of these recommendations that you really struggle with, but you can focus on all the other elements that help to heal endo that you don't feel like that's a bad option because we all know that diet has you know it's it's much easier said than done when it comes to actually implementing dietary recommendations and your food likes dislikes your budget your access your um you know your your lifestyle and, and everything has an influence on how easy versus difficult these recommendations are to implement over the long term, and only you get to choose where you draw that line. Mm. So this is information um, from both the research and our clinical experience, but it's by no means to to make you feel like this is what you have to do. Mm. If you draw the line at a different perspective, it's more just bringing awareness to some of the tools that are in your toolkit to be able to influence. The experience of endo that you might be having at the moment or painful periods. So even if you don't have diagnosed endometriosis, but you're fitting the symptom picture, I would say these, these recommendations are still worth a go. Um so speaking of which, uh, I think I might just dive into the the first one. And these are in no particular order. We're just we just thought of the most common things that we speak to our clients about and thought we'd just run through them with you. So the first one is uh, dairy. So I feel like this is probably the most well-known one when it comes to endo and also painful periods, or at least I really hope so. It could just be the circles that I, that I roll in. Um, and the problem with dairy at a top level perspective is that it basically that the casein in it can increase inflammatory cytokines. So whenever I say inflammatory, we like that's something we don't want because there's already enough inflammation that's going unchecked in endo. So it can increase inflammatory cytokines, and it also can decrease glutathione, which is our main kind of where our master antioxidant in our body. So it com- it compromises our ability to mop up a lot of the like the stress on a tissue level that is experienced when someone is going through endo Mm. um so the question that also comes up when we're speaking about dairy is oh is it all dairy and and amy we might differ in the answer to this so feel free to um jump in if you after this with your perspective and experience but I would say when I'm first starting off someone on a on a dairy-free diet, I encourage them in the context of endo, I encourage them to remove all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, then what I would first reintroduce would be things that are dairy fat-based. So things like butter, ghee, pure cream, because they only have trace amounts of casein in there. And in my experience- more so than not, it it hasn't been a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that I'd then do from there, if there was someone who just loved dairy, um, then I'd go after that, after that reintroduction and seeing how that plays out, I would then potentially consider something like sheep's or goat's milk based dairy, which tends to be less pro-inflammatory and less problematic than cow's based dairy. Mm -hmm. But if I'm being really honest, I'd say that most of my endo patients still have an issue with it. It's just about... What where they choose to draw the line with that. Mm. Anything to add there on the, on the dairy front with your experience in that?
1: Mm, yeah. I mean, what you described as far as how you triage things is exactly what I would do, actually. Um, and I find at the other end of the spectrum, like cheese is the worst, which is so sad. I know because cheese is life, but it is what it is. Um, that being said, you know, and we'll talk about gut health in this episode too, but I do find when you do some work on the gut and support those foods with digestive enzymes, once you've come out the other side, I find that some women can absolutely enjoy cheese now and then um, supported by enzymes, you know, post a proper gut repair. But for the most part, yes, I, I would say the same. Butter and cream tends to be very well tolerated and then yeah, moving to sheep and goats, yogurt before cows. And there's a few reasons for this. So you've got, um, first of all, all mammalian milk is full of growth factors that stimulate cell tissue proliferation. And that's because the mother mammal, whether it's a cow or a goat or a sheep or a human is producing that milk to grow a very little Version of our species or their species into a big one as quickly and safely as possible, and so it's that's like it's laden with hormones, androgens, estrogens, um, insulin-like growth factor, which is a really proliferative protein that stimulates um, tissue development. And when you've got tissue like endometrium, that is. Um, constantly developing and shedding, it's it's uh, it's unlike most of the other tissues in the body in terms of its renewal process and timing. It's going to be the most sensitive to that kind of protein. Um, and so and then of course all of the hormones in there as well. So yeah, so dairy is a really big one for me. Um I do a lot of work in the space with acne and that is absolutely something mm. that tends to be a significant issue for people and hormones and you know there's so many studies that show dairy affects fertility, menstrual cycles, blah blah blah. It's a hormonally laden food that is designed for babies in particular of another species. And whilst I still wholeheartedly, you know, cheese is life, it's really not something that I think as far as, you know, compatibility with our physiology goes is on the same level as fruits, vegetables, and meats, because it is Mm. for baby animals. So, yeah. Now, another one that's maybe not so... Again, probably quite well known, um, but also not so compatible with human digestion is the gluten. And I know we always beat up on gluten just about every gluten. episode. Don't, don't, don't. Oh yeah. man, it's it's not us, it's you, man. Gluten. <laughs> um, and I tell you why, there's a few reasons. Um and it's it's very multifactorial. It's partly due to the shithouse gut health human beings now have because there's antibiotics and everything, pesticides and everything, and also the stupid things we do, like drinking alcohol and having sugar and um, coffee and inflammatory foods and taking, you know, antibiotics for anything willy-nilly. So there's there's that, there's also the cross-hybridization and the and the amount of gluten proportionally in each grain. <clears throat> and then namely, probably one of the largest factors is the glyphosate um you know also going by the commercial names of things like roundup that is sprayed over commercially produced food and we will talk about anti-inflammatory food and you know i will mention that the more things you can eat organic the better but the combination of all of those things plus our stressful lifestyles plus emfs plus blue light means we've really gotten to a point where our immunological tolerance for things is very, very low. And also we don't produce the digestive enzymes to break gluten down. So that is a really bad combination of things. Now, um, this is something that I think um, is kind of obvious, but there are also studies supporting going gluten-free. You know, one particular study that was done on almost 300 patients found that after, well, at the 12 month follow-up, I don't think it's going to take a year of being gluten free for symptoms to improve. In fact, we can often see small changes improve the cycle the very next month or sort of four to five months later um, as that, you know, follicle sort of comes to full development. But 75% of patients were actually able to see a statistically significant change in painful symptoms we've also seen it improve fertility which is of course a common issue that goes alongside endometriosis sometimes it's the first you know time someone actually has it identified because again allopathic medicine is inherently misogynistic and gender biased, meaning the time to diagnosis for endo for women can be 10 years, 15 years. And, um, you know, after a whole lot of gaslighting misdiagnoses and being fobbed off. So Mm. love being a lady. Um, but certainly, you know, cutting out gluten and dairy are probably the two big cornerstones of removing Mm. inflammatory foods and, um, from, from your diet, from your gut. And, and it's, we probably won't touch on it in this episode because it's kind of a technical conversation, but there is a huge connection between leaky gut or increased gastrointestinal hyperpermeability issues with the gastro um, gastric mucosa, and which is where, of course, the bulk of the immune system sits, and the lesions that occur both within the uterus and around the rest of the body. Um, and that's, you know, a nerdy chat for another time and another place. But, you know, There's inflammatory foods, there's hormonal foods, and there's also foods that trigger immune processes in the gut that affect the rest of the body, Um, and gluten is definitely one of those major players that can kind of derail everything um, in quite a significant way. Um, Mm. I might just touch on sugar quickly before I hand it back to you, Nat, as well. I think the overarching message here, even though we're going through the key pieces that we know either from clinical practice ourselves or there's studies out there now supporting what, you know, naturopathically we've observed for a long time. Um, The overarching message here is an anti-inflammatory, unprocessed diet as much as possible. And but it would be remiss of us not to point out the fact that sugar is incredibly inflammatory, depleting minerals from the body, affecting the microbiome of the gut, and therefore affecting gut health and immune health um, and hormone health um, because of its impact with cortisol um, and the liver. So you know, if you are currently someone dealing with endo, and you are including a lot of refined sugar in your diet, that's another really obvious place to start changing changing your habits. Um, of course, you don't have to do everything all at the same time; just one thing at a time is good. Um, but those would probably be the main sort of big pieces. And then on top of that, there's a few sort of more subtle elements you can begin to consider if you've got those big pieces in place. And I know, Nat, histamine can be quite a big thing for people too.
0: Yeah. Yep. There's there's definitely more, more cherries on top. And this is where we go, you know, you can trial these things out, see how it goes for you. And also, you know, cost versus benefit because some of the additional ones we're going to speak about I would say arguably are a little bit more quote unquote restrictive um albeit sometimes very effective. So histamine um basically like when we're talking about histamine and and I guess why it why it's considered to be something you may want to eliminate or even well you can't really eliminate all of histamines but reduce your histamine load mm-hmm. is because well a couple of reasons, but probably one of the primary ones is that it stimulates the ovaries to make more estrogen. And estrogen itself can um, basically trigger mast cell activation, which then causes more histamine release. And histamine is involved in pain perception as well. And um, also estrogen can decrease the the main enzymes that are responsible for actually breaking histamine down and and clearing it. And so it's it's a bit of like in relationship to the way that it affects um, or influences pain perception um, and also the way that it it then relates to estrogen because it is a bit of a chicken or the egg sometimes with histamine and estrogen. So mm. histamine will increase estrogen, but estrogen will increase histamine for an oversimplified way of saying that. Mm. And so I feel like... I, in clinic, I will kind of have a look, you know, broadly at someone's overall histamine load. And if I can see that they've already nailed the gluten, the dairy, and they have a big histamine load, um, then it may be worth just considering a reduction in the really high histamine foods for a period of time. So some examples of of that are things like chocolate, coffee, um, tomatoes, um, citrus, uh, anything that is like cured or fermented. And so again, it's it's a bit of a choose your own adventure in some ways of what you want to trial. Um, and then we can also do things outside of that to actually support histamine clearance. And again, this kind of highlights the importance of coming back to, to gut health in a way because um, gut health is really important when it comes to managing endometriosis, and and again, a conversation probably for another day because we just want to focus on the food recommendations here. The last one I um, that I wanted to share that ties into the gut side of things is also uh, mentioning that for some people in the research and definitely clinically as well, following a low FODMAP diet can also improve symptoms. Mm-hmm. Now. The re- like there's a few reasons as to why that may be. So one really common reason is that it's 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 not uncommon, in fact, it's very common for people who have endometriosis to also have some form of imbalance in good and bad bacteria or even the presence of of what we call Um, gram negative bacteria that produce something called LPS and endotoxins. All that means and all you need to remember is that it just contributes to more inflammation. And so for some people going on a reduced FODMAP diet or a low FODMAP diet can allow some of that to settle not completely because we haven't actually addressed the root cause of it, but symptomatically can allow that to settle. My approach to that is that I would only ever use that short term and almost as a little bit of an indication to me as to where I need to look next as a clinician as far as gut health and and root causes go. But it's certainly something, particularly if you've got a lot of gut and bowel symptoms alongside your endo which is very common that you could potentially do a trial of for a month or two and just see your individual response to it if you find that it does help you my encouragement would be to get onto a practitioner asap that is well versed in endo and gut health and get them to help you to actually treat the underlying gut imbalance because that will help with the endo itself um so i just thought i'd i'd mention that one there is there anything else from a oh actually i just remembered my other thing that i was going to share eggs so eggs is one that clinically in my experience i find that there are some people where that is a trigger for their endo or their experience of pain. So this isn't one to my knowledge that's been studied in isolation in the scientific literature. It's just simply something that myself and and I I know of a few other clinicians that practice in this space have noticed. And so if yeah, if you've tried all the other things and and perhaps you would like another tool to try, you can try eliminating eggs for a couple of months and then bringing them back in. Um and see if that makes any difference to you. Obviously, if it doesn't, please keep them in. They're a very nutrient dense food, and it it offers a lot of you know it's they're in everything, so it's very convenient to keep them in. But it's also something I thought I'd I'd mention because it is something that's popped up in clinical
1: practice a number of times now. Mm, yeah, such a good point. Um, and this is where working with a practitioner can really make a big difference because you know you I mean there's probably thousands of blogs. Posts on the internet of you know practitioners recommending X, Y, and Z, and maybe endo sufferers saying this is what worked for me. But actually, working with a practitioner to find out what works for you is the shortcut to getting it sorted more quickly. Um, that being said, another couple of um, you know last few things to avoid. <laughs> Um, at this point, you're probably thinking, what the hell can I eat? We'll talk about that in a second. Um avoiding vegetable oils uh, would also be a really good idea. So fats are an incredible macronutrient for us as human beings for a thousand reasons. Um, but one particular thing that we're thinking of when we say this is our body makes these amazing chemicals that are either anti-inflammatory or, pro-inflammatory. Now, there's other issues with vegetable oils in that they're rancid, can damage cell membranes, strip fat-soluble vitamins out of you, but they also contribute to the overall inflammatory load. And we know with endometriosis, you've already got a very high inflammatory load. Now, I don't think vegetable oils are fit for human consumption full stop. And I look forward to the day when they're not part of our Food chain, um, in particular, processed foods, they're just hidden in everything, Um, but they are particularly problematic when you have an inflammatory condition. Um, And when you've got a hormonally influenced condition, you've got to be especially mindful of xenoestrogens. And what that means is not drinking and eating foods that are out of plastic. So that is not drinking water out of plastic water bottles. It's not buying processed food in plastic containers. It's definitely not heating up food in plastic containers. And if you can swap your food storage containers to glass or stainless steel, that is also a really good idea. It's avoiding glad wrap, um, things like that, just because those xenoestrogens Um, again, will have a proliferative or stimulating effect Mm -hmm. to the endometrial tissue in your body. In fact, also, if uh, we just did an episode, two episodes ago on the chemicals and tampons, there are a lot of xenoestrogenic and endocrine disrupting chemicals in women's hygiene products, um, commercially manufactured ones. And they also have been shown to have A negative impact on endo patients. So minimizing those particular classes of chemicals would also be a good idea that of course extends to you know personal care products that have got phthalates and things like that so per, anything that has fragrance um etc cetera, etc cetera. so before you panic and think oh my god i need to live in a bubble I can, all i can do is drink water just not from plastic mm-hmm. bottles um what do you focus on so if you're feeling like that that would say to me you're probably at the very beginning of your let's clean up our personal nutrition journey um and so some of the basics would be there's probably really two or three things i would say um number 1 the, again, the overarching message here is increasing anti-inflammatory foods. And the fa- my favorite ones to get women to focus on are increasing your omega-3 fatty acid intake from deep sea cold water fish. So the acronym SMASH highlights the fish that have high omega-3s So, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. Salmon's probably the most popular for lots of reasons. Some of those other ones, maybe culturally, we haven't consumed on a regular basis. But, you know, there's lots of amazing recipes on this thing we call the internet. And it's just really a matter of finding, you know, the things and the flavors that you like. Um, You can also take a good quality fish oil. And I mean that when I say you have to focus on the quality. But by having more, EPA and DHA on a daily basis, you are giving your body essential fatty acids that help it produce anti inflammatory chemicals, natural internally manufactured painkillers, and reducing cellular inflammation. So that would be one such thing. Um, Second of all, you know, having, I mean, this is such common sense, but having adequate and optimal amounts of richly pigmented seasonal produce. So eating um, local uh, whole foods that are grown nearby, um, the richer in color the fruits and vegetables are, the more anti-inflammatory, antioxidant pigments that they have. Um, If you're eating locally, you're only going to be getting what's in season anyway. And for, I mean, in an ideal world, everything we'd eat would be organic. We wouldn't have toxic pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, and endocrine-disrupting crap sprayed all over our food. Unfortunately, though, the balance is such that most of our food supply currently looks like that. Um, If you're not in a position to eat completely organic, and there's lots of reasons why that might be challenging, whether it's cost, availability, you know, where you are, There are certain things that would be more ideal to prioritize as organic as far as food goes. I personally will never eat non-organic chicken. Or eggs. Um, And I tend to prioritize organic produce for the things that are either sprayed a lot or you can't scrub it off. Um, So, things like leafy greens and berries would be, you know, far more important to get organic than say an orange or a banana where you don't eat the peel, for instance. So, you know, start with what you've got where you have. And if Thinking about pesticides is a step beyond what you've got. Just focus on eating local, seasonal, um, fresh produce. And that will already put you in an incredible position because our body uses those amazing phytonutrients to detoxify stuff anyway. Um, And probably the last thing I would say is, you know, being mindful of the things that are really great for good gut health. So adequate fiber, adequate prebiotics um, would be really important. And again, you know, as Nat mentioned, there's this big connection with gut health and endo. And if you're having trouble um, digesting FODMAPs or certain types of carbohydrates, that's a sign the lining of your gut has been damaged. And therefore, once you do the work on that, you'll be able to tolerate those things once more at some point in time in the future. So... If your gut health isn't such that you can tolerate prebiotics and high fiber foods, um, obviously don't drop those in for the sake of it because they will cause more inflammation while your gut can't handle it. Um, But that is definitely a sign that you need to do some work on your gut so that that will um that will improve. And that's probably all I've got for today's conversation. Nat, do you think we covered everything there? I think we did. There
0: was one other thing that came to mind as we were speaking, and it's more of a TCM traditional Chinese medicine Ooh, yes. philosophy. And that is focusing on mostly warm and cooked foods mm, um, mm. to help promote blood flow and energy flow through your system mm. and that's something that I know my beautiful acupuncture friends and colleagues <laughs> and even my acupuncturist if she's listening will mm. will be cheering that we've mentioned there because mm. it, and I, I definitely can like I definitely agree with that I think it's challenging particularly mm. I find it quite challenging because I live in quite a hot climate and I often just want to eat cold, raw foods. Mm. However, I do think if you can at least shift to an 80, 20% kind of situation where you're having 80% cooked and or warming foods um, mm. and maybe just that 20% raw and or mm. cold foods. So mm. we'll leave you with that little thought. Um, And then, yeah, I guess circling back to the one-to-one working with a practitioner so both Amy and I are definitely well versed in this area so if you are needing some help um, and you really want want to get into the nitty-gritty of your endo or your period pain or whatever it might be that you're struggling with at the moment then please feel free to reach out. Um, For me you can you're welcome to either send me an email at support at nataliekdouglas.com or book a free 20-minute assessment call via the link in my Instagram bio or just send me a, a DM on Instagram. Mm-hmm. At the moment, I've got a small number of spots starting in the next couple of months before I close my books again. Um, so if if you're listening to it, make sure that you reach out ASAP. Amy, how? what's the best way people can get in contact with you if they would like to become a client?
1: Mm. So you can jump on my website and reach out via that way. You can either go straight into one of my packages, or you can fill out an application form to give me an idea of like where you're at, maybe what you've done so far and what you're looking for. And I can reach out via email, but if you'd like just to make direct contact, feel free to email me at hello at whatthenatropathsaid.com or send me a little DM on Instagram. I'm there at that naturopath.
0: Amazing. Love it. All right, friends. Well, have the most beautiful rest of your day or evening, and we will see you all next week. Bye for now.
1: You've been listening to the Holistic Health Podcast with Amy and Nat. If you loved this episode, then make sure you share it on Instagram and give us a tag. If you'd like to help us spread the Holistic Health message far and wide, then we would also so appreciate it if you left a rating and review. This helps us more than you know. And don't forget to come and say hi over on Instagram.
0: See you next week.